0: airlines confidential with ben baldanza and seth kaplan is made possible with the support of seabury capital group global reach global scale seaburycapital.com clear a leader in touchless travel learn more at clearme.com hotel connections the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations HotelConnections.com and Boyd Group's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit, this August in Cincinnati. Visit airlinesconfidential.com to attend at a reduced rate. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. He is not the one on this podcast who has to apologize in advance if you hear any banging because the upstairs neighbor is doing this big renovation right now. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines
1: work. Well, even though he doesn't have a car, he still moves faster than just about everyone in D.C. He's Seth <laughs> Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst.
0: Yeah, true story, by the way, about the neighbor. It seems to be quieter right now. We might get through this show without it. And by the way, I have nothing to complain about because a couple of years ago, we did this big, noisy renovation. And I told all my neighbors then, you know, we live at a condo in D.C., that it, Sometime in the future, the only way we can pay it back to them for what they went through is tolerating the same thing. And and so now, finally, (laughs) it's payback time uh, for us. But like I said, quiet for now. Well, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we're going to talk about something that might seem to have nothing to do with the airline industry, except that it has everything to do with the airline industry, or then
1: again, does it? And we'll take a complaint about an airplane that's not even flying anymore. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Then all the major
0: U.S. cruise lines have suspended sailings through September 15th. Uh, now, wait, you say I thought this was airlines confidential, not cruises confidential. Ah, But cruises are important to airlines because how do lots of people get to the boat on a plane? Look, I'm an exception to that. I've been on a number of cruises in my life, but only when I lived in South Florida and could drive to the seaport. So I actually never flew to catch a cruise. But now my family and I were supposed to take a cruise from Quebec City to Boston this October, stopping in Halifax and some other places in between, flying from Washington to Quebec City to catch the cruise and then flying back from Boston, just how lots of people do it. Well, in Canada, no cruises through at least October now. So the cruise is canceled. And that means no flights for us or does it? Ben, that brings me to my question. Will we just fly somewhere else instead and give the money to the airline anyway, or at least some airline anyway? Uh, Then again, this was kind of a specific cruise we were planning to take, kind of a tricky timing for us. We were squeezing it in, wanted to do this with our extended family. Maybe we just won't travel then after all, or take a short trip in a car or on a train. Ben, when a major source of business for airlines like cruise lines basically evaporates, what is the net impact on airlines? You understand what I'm asking, right? Oh, absolutely. Not, the, not the same. that Yeah. What, yeah. What's,
1: you know, it, it can be somewhat significant for airlines that have a big presence in big cruise ports like Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Houston, which is a growing cruise port, or Baltimore yeah. or Los Angeles or – even New York to some extent not, yeah. is, not as much cruising from there. With Houston, um,
0: it's it, – Galveston is the port. That, yeah, that Galveston. That's right. 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 But Houston but is right. the Dubai. airport where yeah. people would fly sure. into.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, so the reality is it can mean you know some percentage of the leisure traffic that they carry. It's usually on a little lower rate because they usually have a deal with the cruise line where they'll offer the cruise line – what, what the airlines call an unpublished rate, which means consumers can't get that rate to fly, but they sell it to the cruise line and the cruise line packages it with part of the things and the cruise line pays the airline behind the scenes. So nobody right. really knows how much they paid for the airline trip. They just know that it was included in their cruise. Right. Some people don't take that option and choose to fly themselves and they'll pick the airline they want to fly in on. Yeah. Or they'll drive like you did when you lived in Miami, right? Yeah. But it can be... Uh, The only thing is because it tends to be the lower rate travel and because it tends to be leisure, it usually is possible. Again, I'm not talking about COVID specifically, but it's usually possible to replace that with other similarly priced traffic because when it comes to cheap traffic going to leisure destinations, that's usually a very large pool of people that can't all be served because there just aren't enough seats. Now today- anyone willing to get on a plane is a valuable commodity. So today it's hurting airlines more than not. But the point here, Seth, is a real good one too, which is no matter what your view is of airline demand recovery, meaning when will people be comfortable flying again, it's not only a function of when the airlines can make people confident that they can be safe, but it's a function of what the people can do when they get off the plane. I mean, imagine going to Orlando without Disney being open. Right. Or imagine going to Cancun without being able to dive. You need these things. So cruise lines are like that, right? The cruise lines need to be operating for airlines to support demand to cruise ports.
0: And what's interesting now is, okay. so usually when something goes wrong in a particular destination, the impact for airlines flying there can be surprisingly small if the destination is what's called substitutable, right? So, And here's what I'm talking about. When something awful happens in Puerto Rico, as has happened too recently in in, in recent years, uh, you know, between the hurricane and the political issues and all the rest of it, uh, you know, the simple analysis might be, oh, my goodness, there's lots of air service to Puerto Rico. That's got to be terrible for whether it's JetBlue, American Airlines, other airlines that, uh, that serve San Juan. But very often the net impact is smaller than you might think because for people who were just flying to Puerto Rico because they wanted to go to a beach let's say it's not that the trip isn't going to happen they might just be flying to a different beach and they might be giving all the same money to those same airlines so you have that phenomenon and and I guess the question now and this is sort of going on with so many things in the airline industry because this is just so much bigger than most crises is whether They'll capture most of that demand, either, like you said, to the same place, right? They might just fill the same seat some other way, since that was kind of a low-yield trip anyway, or are these people going to fly somewhere? They're just going to fly somewhere else to something that's possible, right? As you said, the cruise is impossible. Theme parks, at least up until recently, have been impossible, but there are other things you can do, right? You can go to Las Vegas. You might not be able to do everything you could have done, but it's opening again now and that sort of thing. And so... What do you think here? Do you think most of it is where the net isn't the gross, right? Where things are just not nearly as bad as you'd think? Or is it kind of, yeah, people can't go on a cruise and they can't go to Disney World and they can't do all these other things. And at some point, just the impact on airlines is is, is unavoidable.
1: I, I think it is kind of unavoidable, at least in the near term, Seth. You know, it's not only that, well, do I get on a plane and what can I do when I land? But do I want to get on a plane? I mean, there's still uncertainty about that. Now, I've flown a couple of times in the last few weeks, and so I have, you know, some sort of real-time view of what it means to fly and what the airport's like and and things like that. And I would fly again now, but I understand why families or somebody maybe who's a little older or something like that might say, you know – I'm just going to wait until either there's a vaccine or until I know everybody's traveling again or something. That even if I can go to a place where that is open and I want to go, maybe I'll just stay a little closer to home and I'll drive or something. That's why I actually think theme parks that are starting to reopen will probably do quite well, at least the ones that rely on drive traffic, like the Cedar Fairs and the Six Flags and things like that. You know, Disney, a lot of people fly in, but people come yeah. from Florida too, as you know. And, you know, just driving to a theme park might be a little more palatable for some people who want to get out but don't quite feel comfortable getting on the plane yet.
0: It's funny because I haven't been on a plane still. I'm almost the opposite in that I'm not afraid to fly. I'm thinking, and I'm not, I'm not afraid to take my family on, on a trip, you know, us being you know not in a high risk category, but I'm thinking about the people on the other end, right? I'm thinking about if we're going to fly down to Florida to see relatives who are just even by virtue of age in that higher risk category, you, you know, what if we have something that we don't know? And in fact, just today I took my COVID antibodies test. Just cu- And I know those aren't perfect, but I'm curious to see, like, you know, we've had some exposure here. I haven't been sick, but I want to know if I have the antibodies, just- Something well, let us know next robot. week. <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> Tune in. Well, another week of great questions, including one here I really love. Uh, but first, I want to welcome Seabury Capital Group as a sponsor. Seabury is a has been in the news a lot. A specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a twenty-five year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace, and defense, maritime, financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, especially at times like this. This is what accounts uh, state-of-the-art analysis, technology solutions, as well as unmatched depth of relationship with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. They can put it all together for you. You can explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com, Seabury is S-E-A- B-U-R-Y, com. Back to the mailbag. Adam from Kentucky writes, and and, and this is why I love this, Ben. We get a lot of questions like this, uh, and so this is representative of what we hear all the time, and I love this on so many levels. Hey, guys, I'm a recent 2020 college graduate with a degree in aviation management what timing, right? That's me saying that. Uh, But I just, but no, this is is great. I just started working full-time as an airport operations specialist. However, I know this isn't my career job. While in school, I worked for Allegiant Air before I'd go to class. I'd like to get back into the airlines for my next job here in a few years and work my way into management. What do you suggest is the best route for me to do this? Would an MBA make me a more attractive candidate? should I put this podcast as education on my resume? No, please don't do that. Uh, <laughs> or maybe, I don't know. I guess it depends who's on the other end. Maybe the, maybe they'll respect that. Tell them you learned everything you know from Airlines <laughs> Confidential. So first of all, I think a great, I, I, I just take it as, as a complimentary a real great responsibility to know that people are are tuning into this. You know, people like Adam, to, to learn something about the industry. So thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam's colleagues and, and others around the country and world who do that really warms our heart uh, to know that you feel that way about uh, this show. I, and I mean that. So yeah, Ben. Adam's question in general, and then right now, because this is a different moment, uh, this is not the best time to be getting into the airline industry. But on the other hand, everybody knows that, and maybe that's sort of priced in, so to speak, right? Whenever an industry is impacted like that, you know, years back when you heard, oh, it's a terrible time to become a lawyer, uh, admissions into – applications rather into law schools went down. And so it kind of works itself out. That might be happening now. Maybe other people thinking, I don't want to go into aviation. So who knows? Maybe this is the time to plant the seeds, to make the relationships, even if airlines are not exactly hiring management uh, staff like Adam wants to be eventually. So what's your advice to Adam? Does he go for an MBA, especially with the environment right now? Anything else he and and. Young women and men like him around the country should know.
1: Well, an MBA isn't essential, but it's helpful. And so if the jobs aren't there and you have the time, money, and inclination to get the MBA, it is a potentially slightly faster track into management at an airline. Although there's plenty of airlines that hire people without MBAs too. So I'm not saying that that's essential. You know, I teach a class up at uh, George Mason University. Yeah. Most of my students are undergrads and a number of them have gotten jobs at airlines over the last couple of years. And they're not MBAs, but what they've been able to do in their interviews is show a real interest in the business Understand the terms and the metrics because they've taken the class and they've heard you speak to them. For example, <laughs> right, <laughs> and um, and that that distinguishes them. If you just have someone who comes from a school and says, "Well, I'm looking at all kinds of jobs, and you know, I've I've heard of this airline, so tell me about it," versus they say, "I'm really interested in airlines, and I've been following the reports on airlines, and I understand what unit revenue is and unit costs, and I understand how the industry structured and." I understand what yield management is and things yeah. like that. And I took this class at college and I listened to this great podcast, right? I mean, those kind of things do distinguish you and say, because companies want people to work for them who are smart, who are energetic, who are going to work hard, but are also who are excited about working for that company. And, you know, in a world today where so many people think the best jobs must be at Google or Apple or Amazon or these, you know, big techie kind of companies for, Students to be interested in a capital intensive industry like airlines, I think is a great thing. And it's such an important industry for the economy that I think it's great to have smart people wanted to do it. One other thing I would say to Adam is that the areas in management that airlines most often hire into are either in the finance area like financial analysis, where you'd basically be almost like an internal consultant, building financial models, helping departments understand their costs and revenues and modeling projects and things like that. And in the What I would call the more technical revenue areas, like pricing, revenue management, and aircraft scheduling, those are areas that need good quantitative skills, need people who understand data and how to use data well, and can learn tools that are unique for the airline industry. And in both of those areas, the airlines like to hire people out of college because they can train them about the business in roles that are important for the business. That doesn't mean you can't get hired in HR or you can't get hired in IT or other parts. But financial analysis and sort of the marketing, technical marketing side are where most of the jobs are offered. And most airlines post those jobs on their websites. You can go under employment and they'll say, look, we have an analyst and schedule planning available or an analyst in revenue management available, and those are the kind of jobs to apply for where a background with some sort of quantification background or a quantified background, and especially if you've listened to this podcast, if you know something about the industry, you work for Allegiant, you're going to look really good for that. Now, right now, like Seth said, may not be the best time because airlines are, you know, all going to be smaller for a little while, and that means that people are probably going to be leaving the industry more than adding. But there are also some people who are going to self-select out because they say, this just isn't for me anymore, and that's going to leave openings too. So the reality is this is an industry that always needs smart people, and it needs smart people now too. So if you're good, and you're willing to work hard, and you're smart, and you care about this industry, you should go for it.
0: And the other piece of advice I would give to Adam, and really to anybody trying to get into an, an industry is apply for jobs that aren't open. I know it sounds contradictory, and here's what I mean. I don't mean exactly that, but what I mean is establish relationships with people when they are not being bombarded with resumes. And this is actually a great time to do that. And and I can tell you this from... Being on both sides of this, from having hired people and having looked for opportunities over the years, that the best time to talk to somebody is when they don't have an opening at the moment and they're not getting all of these applications, all these resumes streaming in, you know, go to them and say, this is what I'd like to do someday. I know you might not have any openings right now, but just wanted to say hi, wanted to show you what I can do, ask you for any advice. And, you know, establish that relationship because then when the opening does happen and it will happen, I realize maybe not this month or next, but when it happens, then you have a leg up over everybody else because you're not just one of. Dozens or who knows hundreds of resumes coming in for a job opening. You're the one person or one of a few people who that person already knows, and then you have a personal email that you can reply back to that that they sent you uh, when when you first established the communication, and that that is a big, big difference. So I, especially right now, yeah, absolutely. Well, you might have heard Ben about our little rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma last weekend, and I do mean little. Well, but just as this is not Cruises Confidential, it's also not Politics Confidential, so we won't get into that. This is Airlines Confidential. So what does a Trump rally have to do with the airline industry other than that President Trump briefly owned an airline 30 years ago? Well, conservative activist and Trump supporter Brandon Straka was apparently banned by American Airlines last week, a few days before the rally, for being a passenger behaving badly. That's our terminology, of course, not his or the airline's. What was his bad behavior? Failure to wear a mask on board a flight from New York LaGuardia to Dallas-Fort Worth. Now, Straka doesn't deny that allegation. To the contrary, he was all over social media complaining about the tyranny of having to wear a mask. Yeah, Bennett really is a slippery slope, isn't it? One day they're making you wear a mask and the next day, who knows, maybe they're asking you to wash your hands, right? Something awful like that. Well, (laughs) now some of the details are a matter of debate. Uh, Straka says airline employees told him he had to wear a mask because it's the law, which actually isn't true in America. It's the policy of most airlines, a a policy which some of them began enforcing a lot more stringently last week including by threatening to, well, ban passengers from flying if they don't comply. Straka also claims a supervisor at American later apologized to him. In fact, he was rebooked on a later flight that day, but the airline later said Straka is in fact banned for at least as long as the mask policy remains in place. Straka, for his part, indicated that he would fly to Tulsa for the rally. He didn't say how. He was clearly there, based on social media and all the rest of it, but he hasn't indicated how he got there. No reports have emerged since then about that. I mean, probably just because there's, there are other things going on in the country. I reached out to him for comment, uh, sent him an email. He didn't immediately respond, although to be fair, that was just shortly before we began recording. If he does get back to us, We'll be sure to tell you next week what he says. Ben, you were telling me before the show about an experience you had on American Airlines of all airlines last week, and it sounds like they were not nearly as strict with some of the passengers who you saw as they were with Mr. Straka.
1: Well, I also wasn't wearing a MAGA hat. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who Straka was. I don't think he.
0: I don't. I don't think he, he was. He was wearing some. Garb that indicated that he, uh, <laughs> serious opinions. Loyalty. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but, but I mean, there's so no, well, there's uh, no indication. I mean, for, for that matter, there's no indication and he's not alleging that they went after him because of his views. I, I mean, he, clearly I mean, it was for him true. about the mask, uh, and, and reports are that he went back and forth. He was inconsistent, said that you know, he couldn't wear a mask at some point. And, but anyway, you know, he's clear about, look, he, this all happened because he wasn't wearing a mask.
1: You know, this is a, this is a tough thing for airlines because if you don't wear your seatbelt while the plane's landing, a flight attendant can say, you need to put your seatbelt on, it's a law. And most people get that and they put their seatbelt on, right? And they know that. And in fact, there's consequences to not following the law, including being arrested when you land potentially, right? And the mask thing though, isn't a law, although it's strongly recommended by all airlines. And like you said, While airlines have all said they're going to step up and do even better enforcement of this. On my flights on American last week, I really didn't see that behavior. The flights were full and I saw people take off their mask, put it back on their mask. I didn't see flight attendants say anything about it. When the plane pulled up to the gate, most people just jumped up as opposed to the airline trying to encourage sort of a socially distanced deplaning you know, let the first row get off before the second row gets up, things like that. Yeah. I've seen that yeah. on other areas. Okay. I was going to ask you, you that. Like, okay. It, so, cause I, that's, cause that's was, what I would. It was much more civil. Okay. Yeah. That, that's what I was yeah. going to
0: ask you. Right. You would think that that would just be a new social norm, uh, you know, that people would just understand for everybody's good. But, but yeah, apparently... in fact,
1: when I flew on JetBlue to Boston, one of the things that I, I wrote about and said was just how civil everyone yeah. was, right? They, they got it that you want to not be too close to people in the jet bridge. You want to be careful on board, wear your mask, do things like that. And while I think people on Americans sort of generally got that, the fact that the airline didn't really do much at all, other than sort of read a perfunctory announcement saying, you know, there happens to be a virus going around. It was a little more than that, maybe, but I was actually kind of surprised. Yeah. Now, in this case, I, I have an issue with Straka, though, which is he can say, I don't want to wear a mask, but he should realize that he's wearing the mask for other people, exactly.
0: not just I mean, it's the same thing in a supermarket and, everywhere. Exactly. Yeah.
1: No, that's it's right. The and the freedom argument, I think, is just bunk, Seth. I mean, we're not free to go drive 70 miles an hour on, in a 30-mile-an-hour city street. Right. We're not free to, to get drunk and then go drive a 3,000-pound car. Right. Right. There's a lot of things we're not free to do without consequence. Or right? even – You could go do those things – but you can expect and should expect that there could be a very negative consequence to that behavior. So the fact that to say, well, I'm I'm free, so I shouldn't have to wear a mask, that's really selfish. And it's really kind of ridiculous. So it's better for people to wear masks. And for the couple hours, you're going to be on a plane, swallow your ego, put the mask on and pull it down when you want to take a drink.
0: It's kind of like when they banned smoking on planes. I mean, they didn't ban smoking mostly to protect you as a smoker from the consequences of smoking. They did it for everybody else, for flight attendants especially, who are up there all the time, and, and other passengers. Really the same concept here.
1: Well, and the thing is, as you know, Seth, the frontline workers in the airline industry really are flight attendants. Yeah. And in, in a difficult situation with the airplane, the flight attendants are going to try to save Straka's life, even potentially at the expense of their own. Yeah. And so just out of common courtesy, he could try to help them by wearing his mask. Yeah.
0: Before. Now in American's defense, back to your flight to Miami, I get to say this as a Miami native, your JetBlue flight, you said was to Boston. The American flight was to Miami. How can I say this? People from Miami, you know, and I'm from there. Um, not always the uh, most orderly about things. So, so, so you'd have, if you wanted to, if you wanted to, Te- to really test it you'd have to go get on an american flight up to boston or, or a JetBlue flight down to down to fort lauderdale or somewhere you fly it then then really uh compare compare notes but definitely at least the, for, with the sample size that you have definitely sounds like uh, one experience was a lot better than the other well does an airline owe you anything if you paid just as much as everybody else but got the worst seat on the plane What about if the incident is still causing you mental anguish three years later? That's when Airlines Confidential returns. Hey, you know, sometimes I'm at an airport and I feel special because I have pre-check, right? Doesn't get any better than that. But then over there, what's that? Those people are getting through even more quickly and even more hassle-free. What's going on? They have clear. You can travel with confidence with clear touchless Fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across America, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com. www.clearme.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or whine is next, but first, let's go back to the mailbag. Tom in Detroit writes, love the show. My question, ground handlers and aviation handling companies are a growing segment of the industry. As airlines look to trim costs after COVID, they're in line for another growth period. Is there room for the smaller handlers, or do you see consolidation? And what do the larger handlers need to do to build their brand with the carriers they serve, the airlines they serve? By the way, the subject line of Tom's message is "Rodney Dangerfields of the airline industry." <laughs> they get so, no respect. So, uh, no, no respect, exactly. <laughs> so, I'm going to guess Tom is probably in that business, or either that, or, or he knows a lot about it. But that's fine. Uh, you know, so are, so are a lot of people. So, for anybody who doesn't know out there, a ground handler is, you know, when when you go to an airport, you. Maybe go to a ticket counter. Uh, in In America, this is not true. In in many other parts of the world, in America, the person at the ticket counter with most airlines is probably an employee of the airline. The person on what's called the ramp, throwing the bags uh, onto the plane, might be an employee of that airline. They might not be. Uh, In many parts of the world, they are almost certainly not an employee of that airline and in america sort of the smaller of a station as, as an airport is called uh, you know if you're at a, at, a, at an airport where the airline you're flying is only there a few times a week those aren't going to be employees of that airline it's just never going to make sense for them to hire people to spend a couple hours a few times a week they're going to outsource that work to what's called a ground handler which is somebody who has enough scale that if they're doing business with lots of different airlines one flight at a time it can make sense to them so that's what ground handling is so tom is asking I guess, first of all, Ben, do you agree with the premise that that, that it's an opportunity there for, for airlines and for these people? And then he's asking is because of all the turmoil, is there more consolidation likely in that industry? And this is total inside baseball. And I know, you know, some people tune into the show for other things, but those who are into this, you know, remember when, you know, what was it? Menzies bought Asig, or, you know, there, there are companies like that, just like every, everywhere else in the industry that have consolidated.
1: Well, that's right. And, you know, like Adam, who wanted to go work in the industry, with all airlines flying less right now, I'm not sure this is the time to think about opportunities for smaller ground handlers. On the other hand, airlines are looking to save costs and are saying, with, with our revenue weaker, how can we cut costs? I will say that airlines that outsource that activity, which is what a ground handler is. It's an outsourced provider of services like fueling the airplane or handling the bags, like you said, or cleaning the labs or things like that. Airlines that do that do it because their union contracts allow them to do it. And there are other airlines where that work is in scope. What in scope means for a union contract is that the work is covered by a union contract. So there may be an airline A big one out there, call it American United or United, for example, right? where they might know that in maybe Pensacola, where they don't have that many flights, they'd be better off hiring a small ground handler in that station. But their union contract might not allow them to do that because their union contract might say anyone who does this work for the airline must work for the union that of the American airlines union and be covered by the pay rates, work rules and things like that of that union. Yeah. So it's not just that every airline can make the decision of, I want to outsource or not, or I want to use this company versus that company. First of all, they have to be able to do it. And even some bigger airlines with big unions, they usually have some flexibility at real small stations or things like that to be able to do some of that kind of thing. Now I will say though, that, um, That's a very thin margin business, meaning the people who do the ground handling don't make that much money. A small ground handler might make sense at a single station, but airlines can often get a better deal from a third party handling their flights if that party or that company can handle them at multiple stations. Because that company, like a Menzies or an Asig or something like that, those are the names of companies that you mentioned – they can benefit from the economy of scale of hiring people in multiple cities and maybe even having equipment in multiple cities, potentially, and things like that. And they can potentially offer an even better deal to an airline than a small player might. So I think for a small ground handler, there's two options. One, try to get all the business you can at the local airport, even for the charter operations and the smaller operations that might be there. And then if a bigger Ground handler comes knocking on the door and say, look, we'd like a little more presence at this airport. You've got good people. You've done a good job. We'd like to talk about buying you. You should take that call.
0: And we should mention there are a couple of other sort of business models for that kind of operation. Airlines. Don't only choose between giant independent ground handlers and tiny ones. Sometimes they hire other airlines, including competitors. Uh, It can just make sense to pay your competitor that has a big operation at an airport where they have people who are kind of idle during a small period of of the day where some small amount of money can make them happy because, you know, it's kind of free for them and and keep their people productive and and a good deal for the other airline. And some places in the world, the airports themselves uh, offer Ground handling. Now, they might outsource that, but they might be uh, the ones doing the, the deal themselves. Well, I, I want to welcome Hotel Connections as a sponsor to the show. Really excited about this one. Uh, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations is Hotel Connections. And not only are they that, the global leader, but they're also a sponsor of Airlines Confidential. I uh, also want to remind you that. The International Aviation Forecast Summit is on Cincinnati, August 23rd to 25th. One of the only conferences I know of that's uh, actually going to happen. It's not just any conference. I mean, it's always one of the best, but now it's not only one of the best. It's also one of the only. I saw an email from them earlier uh, that their extra early rate that they held open is ending uh, this Friday. But there, that's for the general public. But there's an even better rate. Uh, for listeners uh, to Airlines Confidential just for you. Uh, the promo code is AC1550, AC like Airlines Confidential, 1550. So you can either Google International Aviation Forecast Summit, you find it there, or just go to our website, airlinesconfidential.com, and you'll see the link on there. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint and we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Well, usually we get... These just kind of from publicly filed complaints against airlines. We don't generally know the people involved. But this past week, we got a question from a listener that actually sounded more like a fine or whine. So we figured, hey, let's
1: use it in this part of the show. That's right, Seth. This is from Gary in Kansas City. Gary writes, I haven't gotten closure on a flight from Virginia in 2017. My wife and I spent a lovely time at the Outer Banks and booked a return flight to Kansas City with Delta. We got an MD-88 plane and the misfortune of sitting in row 26. The seat is adequate for a three-year-old. I'm six foot and 250 pounds, and I spent the whole flight in misery. The seat is right next to the toilet and the odor nauseated my wife. They offered us free drinks for our discomfort, little compensation for the nightmare. Clearly, those seats should not be equated equal to a regular seat. What should I have done? I don't fly that much, so I'm not a boisterous, demanding person, and I don't know my rights in regard to what I feel is an abuse. I realize it's a three-year post-episode, but is there anything I can do now?
0: First of all, Gary, uh, there's no shame in not being a boisterous, demanding person. Uh, You know That might work once in a while, but I really find that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. You at least start that way uh, and, and see where it takes us. Okay, Outer Banks. So he's talking for people around the world who don't know that. The outer Banks of North Carolina. He probably flew from where? From like Wilmington, North Carolina, Ben, maybe? Maybe, uh, although he said Virginia
1: to... in his thing, so.
0: Uh, oh, okay, right, yeah, Virginia, so. yeah. So maybe, uh, maybe, maybe up in like- Maybe uh, Norfolk or something. <laughs> yeah, Norfolk or something like that. And then maybe connected in, in Atlanta or somewhere on, on the way to Kansas City. Uh, MD88, he wrote wrote he row wrote, wrote 26. Uh, I actually opened up Seek Guru, hoping seat guru would be less on top of things than they usually are they're not a sponsor by the way i'm just i just say nice <laughs> things about people who do a good job um our content is independent and so and because i thought 26 sounded a little too far forward for that it must have been a typo because i saw that row 36 on the recently retired md88s from delta that's why i was glad seat guru wasn't on top of things as they usually are because i was worried that since the last md88 flew like three weeks ago that they would have gotten rid of it by now, but they didn't. And, and there it was yeah, row 36, which is more like it. Uh, all of the seats in row 36 are in red, uh, which on seat guru means stay away from these seats. And when you roll over them, here's seat 36 a, it says, uh, the last row of the plane, it does not recline. The proximity to the lavatories may be bothersome. This seat is missing a window. 36A, the window seat. The others don't say that, but you know, clearly not the best seat on the plane. And just kind of under overview, so this is uh, about just rows in general on this plane. It says, seat pitch is reduced. So that's leg room. Seat pitch is reduced toward the rear of the cabin. Due to rear-mounted engines, the aircraft is noisiest toward the back and seats behind the rear exits should be avoided. Now, Ben, I know I'm in the minority that I just – I loved those rear-mounted engines on the MD-88. <laughs> and it just felt like a rocket when you would take off. And I mean I would have paid extra for that seat. But I'm kind of crazy and I'm also not 6 feet tall and 250. So, you know, on one hand, people that don't fly very much – you know, don't have to deal with as much aggregate discomfort, right? Because they're just not up in the air that much. But a- on the other hand, uh, Gary might not have known to do something like go to Seek Guru or, or a competing site to 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 figure these kinds of things out. So, number one, that's that's a tip for, for anybody. Do that because there, there are resources out there. People have done the research for you and, and you can avoid that unless that was like the only seat left on the plane. But Ben uh, – and I know it's trickier because this is a friend here, uh, a friend of the show, Gary. Uh, we, we don't know him personally, but we appreciate him listening. Usually we're, we're calling people we don't know whiners or saying that their complaint is fine. <laughs> is this fine or is this a whine
1: three years after this happened? Well, I feel bad for Gary that this did happen. But – I think, Gary, it's best if you probably just let this go and use it as a a fun story to tell friends and say, when you fly on Delta, don't sit in the last row because it's really terrible. And you can trash Delta's MD-80s all you want to friends and everyone and even online if you want to. But I think expecting Delta three years later to do anything is probably not realistic. I will also say that Customers complain about seat fees, about the the fee to pick where you sit on the plane. This is one of the reasons those fees exist, too. And I know it costs a little more to say, I want to sit in this nice seat where seat guru said I would be especially comfortable, right? And that costs a little more, but it makes a difference where you sit on the plane. Nobody, even at Delta, nobody would expect that every seat on the plane gives you the exact same experience. But what is true is that every seat on that plane took off from the same airport, and landed at the same airport. So Delta did for Gary what they said they were going to do, get him safely to where they were going to go. If maybe he had bought a seat assignment for a little closer up, or maybe a check seat guru, he might have gotten a better experience. My guess is he would have. And I feel badly that he was crunched into that last row, because yeah. unlike you, Seth, I don't want to sit back there, <laughs> even though I'm an airline geek too. But, but – I have to say, Gary, if this is the worst thing that's happened to your life in the last three years, you've had a really, really nice life (laughs) because it's just not that bad for a couple hour flight. You can, you know, it's okay. Delta's probably not going to do anything now. So feel free to trash them all you want, but don't expect they're going to give you any frequent fire miles or even a free Coca-Cola.
0: Yeah, and again, the good news or the bad news—bad news for those of us who love the MD88—is uh, that those planes are no longer flying. They—they they all rather suddenly retired. I mean, they would have been retired soon anyway, but like a lot with COVID, Delta rushed them out of the fleet just earlier. This I think month. that's
1: good news for customers. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's your opinion on final approach. <laughs> now that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seatbacks and trade tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines
1: Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And with a special thanks to all our new sponsors, I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.